Welcome to this launch edition of Malignant Glioma Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. The new molecular biology of cancer is showing up in a lot of interesting places in oncology, and in the last few years, there's been an explosion of translational work in primary brain tumors, and one of the hot spots is in Durham, North Carolina, and the Duke University Preston Robert Tisch Brain Tumor Center. I interviewed two key members of this unique interdisciplinary collaboration, Dr. James Vredenberg and Dr. Henry Friedman, for an update of their fascinating work. To begin, I met with Dr. Vredenberg, who began our conversation by summarizing key recent developments in the field. It's actually a very exciting time in the treatment of malignant gliomas because we finally understand a lot of the basic science, the biology behind these malignant gliomas. There's really three main pathways that stimulate malignant gliomas. The first one is platelet-derived growth factor. PDGF is much more important in low-grade gliomas. So if a low-grade glioma evolves into a GBM, then the PDGF pathway is very important. The second pathway, epidermal growth factor, that's primarily responsible for primary glioblastoma multiformase. The third pathway, which is really ubiquitous for most tumors, particularly malignant gliomas, is vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF. So what we tried to do in the cancer review was outline how these three pathways interact, the very common intracellular signaling through mTOR and AKT, and that they're finally are inhibitors of all these different pathways. So instead of just blindly using chemotherapy, most of which doesn't get into the brain, we actually have targeted therapies that can inhibit these specific pathways. What's a little bit frustrating is for each individual patient, you're not sure which pathway is more important. So in some respects, it's still a hit or miss situation, but we're getting closer. I think in the future, we'll be able to look at these, each individual tumor, look at the pathway, and then be able to inhibit that particular pathway that's responsible for the patient's tumor growth. And of course, that's really a theme right now in medical oncology. Where are we right now in terms of being able actually practically to look at tissue from these tumors and start to put together, you know, what kinds of therapies would be best for what types of tumors? I think in medical oncology, we've made a lot of progress. Unfortunately, neuro-oncology is lagging behind a little bit. The situation where we're in is that we have some therapies that are working. Now we're going back to the tumors and trying to figure out why they work. We're not at that position where we can assay a patient's tumor, look at different pathways, and then rationally design therapy. I think that's still a couple years away. Now, you mentioned these three major pathways. Could you kind of go through each one in terms of what we know about it and what's going on with gliomas and particularly what we know about interventions targeting these pathways? Absolutely. So let me start with platelet-derived growth factor. Platelet-derived growth factor is responsible for the growth and maintenance of most low-grade gliomas. Low-grade gliomas eventually evolve into a higher-grade glioma, mostly glioblastoma multiforme. So when we try to target platelet-derived growth factors, we inhibit the main stimulus for these tumors. The primary agent that we use is imatinib mesylate, or Gleevec. It was curious in that we knew Gleevec inhibited PDGF. We thought it would work in about the 40% of secondary GBMs, but when we tried it, it didn't work very well. 
It was fortuitous in that an investigator in Germany combined Gleevec with hydroxyurea, and the combination seemed to be a lot more effective than just the Gleevec alone. And we've had some very good activity in a number of GBM patients by inhibiting PDGF. That combination of imatinib and hydroxyurea seems kind of interesting. What's the theory there about why you would do that? It honestly was just fortuitous that hydroxyurea is an old chemotherapy that's been tried in malignant gliomas. The investigator just tried it, and it seemed to work better. We're trying to understand why it works. What we think it is is a pharmacokinetic interaction where the hydroxyurea inhibits the metabolism of the Gleevec. You get a lot more active forms of Gleevec, and that's why it works against secondary GBMs. Now, before you go into some of these other pathways, we talk about the disappointment there with imatinib. How do you evaluate new agents, particularly molecularly targeted agents in GBM? Unfortunately, we're still stuck with the patient's clinical status and contrast-enhanced MRIs. And a lot of times, our primary aim in treating a brain tumor patient is quality of life. So the patient's quality of life may stay stable, acceptable to the patient. The MRI is getting worse. We end up changing therapy. I think we really need a change in our paradigm and be able to really understand what these agents are doing and they take much longer to produce a clinically meaningful effect than standard chemotherapy. Standard chemotherapy kills tumors. These agents just starve tumors. So I think we need to give these more time to work. But what about just straightforward resist criteria? Does that really work for this tumor? Not really. There's a lot more that goes behind interpreting an MRI than just the resist criteria. The resist criteria really relies on the T1 with contrast images to measure the size of the tumor. Now, the contrast images may not enlarge, but the patient's swelling as manifested by the T2 or flare signal may increase a lot. The patient's getting worse. Well, by the resist criteria, that would be a stable disease, whereas in the clinic, we know that's a progressive disease. We did a program recently on GIST, and they were talking about that a lot of times, you know, you give a patient with a big liver mets, you know, matinib, and maybe the scan doesn't even look better, maybe even worse, and then you go in there and it's just a bunch of necrotic tissue. And how do you deal with that kind of situation with some of these new agents? Usually in that situation, the patient is doing the same or better. Right. So necrosis or pseudoprogression is a real issue in our patients. And the way we do that is we first start with the clinical status of the patient. Then we look at the MRI. Then we try to put them both together. And if it's just necrosis, a lot of times the patient's doing better. I do rely on PET scans and MR spectroscopy to help sort those issues out. And if you end up doing all three of them, you should be able to tell growing tumor from necrosis. Let's talk about some of the other pathways. You mentioned EGFR. Epidermal growth factor is the primary driver for malignant gliomas, particularly GBMs. EGF is responsible for invasion, so it makes a lot of sense if you can inhibit epidermal growth factor, you should have a meaningful anti-tumor response. Again, the results have been disappointing, either using monoclonal antibodies to EGF 
or the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, the responses have been minimal. The time to progression is in the order of two to three months. So we really haven't seen that much benefit in the clinic. I think that what that points out is if you inhibit one of these pathways, another of the pathways will upregulate. The tumor becomes resistant very quickly. What we have seen benefit is if you can have a double blockade of the epidermal growth factor pathway. By that, I mean use a tyrosine kinase inhibitor of EGF along with an mTOR inhibitor such as rapamycin or some of the newer agents. And if you can have a double blockade of the EGF pathway, then we have seen more prolonged responses. Now, in lung cancer, has been the fascinating you know, discovery of these tumors that have EGFR mutations. And I know that in gliomas, there have been mutations also seen, but I guess they're different than what's been seen with non-small cell? The mutations in EGFR are very different. The main mutation that's helpful in malignant gliomas, if the patient has an EGFR V3 mutation, and the V3 mutation is constitutively activated, so that EGFR pathway is constantly firing. Now, the EGFR pathway fires through P10. So what you need is an EGFR V3 positive tumor and P10 normal. Then Tarceva or Gefitinib, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors of EGF, will really shut that pathway down. And then we have seen clinically meaningful responses. So now what percent overall of GBMs have this mutation? It's only about 20 to 25 percent, which is frustrating. And the patients that don't have the EGFR V3, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors of EGF really are not active. But I mean, that's not that much different in lung cancer in terms of the incidence. You're saying that these patients have good responses usually? They have stable disease in the order of three to six months. For a GBM patient, we accept that. I guess I wouldn't call that a good response. So is this important enough that it's something that there's thought about actually bringing into the clinic to measure for this assay for this mutation, or is it really not practically useful right now? No, it is very practical. Every patient that comes to the Duke University Brain Tumor Center, we do what's called a tumor phenotyping, where we measure for EGFR V3, we measure for P10, we measure for MGMT, the resistance enzyme to Temidor, and we use that information in making treatment decisions. The other area where it's very important to check for EGFR V3 is there's actually a very active vaccine based on this EGFR V3 mutant. And there's a large phase three randomized study ongoing with the vaccine. So I think that V3 testing is going to become commonplace. Now, this tissue testing or panel, is this something commonly done in tertiary centers? Is it being done in the community? Where are things with it? The only center that I know that does it routinely is Duke University. You can order the EGFR V3 and P10 testing from a commercial laboratory, but I don't think it's done commonly. I think it should be done. Hmm, Interesting. And can you talk specifically about how these specific assays will change the way you approach the patients? 
If I have a patient with a GBM who's V3 positive and P10 normal, I'm going to incorporate anti-EGF therapy early on in that patient's treatment course, i.e. before they progress, because I know I'm going to get a clinically meaningful response. If the patient's EGFR V3 abnormal and P10 abnormal, then the EGFR inhibitors really don't do anything. That's not even part of their armamentarium. Now, for practical purposes, are you talking about erlotinib? Yes. It's just straight as a single agent. Yep. Erlotinib is the main tyrosine kinase inhibitors. There's a lot of others that are available in clinical trials. And normally, we combine erlotinib with an inhibitor of mTOR, such as rapamycin or serolimus. Now, the other pathway or strategy that you mentioned was, I guess, the angiogenic pathways, VEGF. Can you talk about what we know about that? I think that the vascular endothelial growth factor pathway is far and away the most important in malignant gliomas. If you look at a GBM, it's really just a sea of abnormal blood vessels. When we looked for VEGF expression in the laboratory, GBMs had the highest expression of VEGF. Unfortunately, in the solid tumor studies, there were a few patients with brain metastases who bled when they were given anti-VEGF therapy. So the clinical research into the use of anti-VEGF therapies was delayed. But we saw profound benefit to the patients when we used bevacizumab in combination with chemotherapy for GBM patients. Can you specifically track out that research? Sure. It was known that GBMs had very high levels of expression of VEGF, and some of the early work in the development of bevacizumab was done with GBM models. But because of the risk of CNS hemorrhage, GBMs was not pursued as a therapeutic target. Unfortunately, with the extremely poor prognosis of malignant gliomas, I thought it was worth the risk to at least do a clinical trial investigating bevacizumab in malignant gliomas. Fortunately, it was very effective, and now it's really changing how patients are treated and improving the survival of the majority of brain tumor patients. Can you talk specifically about the design of the main trial that you reported and whatever other research has been reported looking at this approach? The main trial we performed was for recurrent GBM patients. They all had failed radiation therapy and temozolomide. One of the few active agents is irinotecan. When I developed the clinical trial, I thought the FDA would be more amenable to the trial as if I combined irinotecan with bevacizumab since that was the approved regimen for colorectal carcinoma. And what we found, there was a 65% response response rate and a 45% six-month progression-free survival, which is more than double seen in any other trial for recurrent GBM. Anything else out there looking at BEV, particularly alone without chemo? And do you have any thoughts about how much the arena really was bringing in? That's a hard question. There was a phase two randomized trial of bevacizumab alone versus bevacizumab and irinotecan that Tim Clausey reported at Society of Neuro-Oncology this past year. The addition of the irinotecan seemed to add about 15% both 
to the response rate as well as to the six-month progression-free survival. It's a little too early to determine if it improved overall survival. Obviously, if the addition of the arenotecan did not improve overall survival, then I'd be inclined to just use the bevacizumab. There are other trials with some of these tyrosine kinase inhibitors of VEGF, such as sidirinib. Terry Batchelor did the trial in Boston, and just as a single agent, saw very good responses and some activity in terms of improvement is six-month progression-free survival. So I don't think that the benefit is unique to bevacizumab. I think it's a VEGF pathway that's important. Can you talk a little bit more about that agent, Sudirimib, or I guess 2171 is another name I've heard for it, in terms of exactly you know how it acts and what was seen clinically with it? Sidirinib is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that inhibits all three VEGF receptors. Sidirinib was given as a single agent to 16 recurrent GBM patients. Dr. Batchelor saw nine of the 16 had at least a partial response. What was very eloquent about their trial is they did a number of corollary studies, and they were able to show that the dynamic contrast-enhanced MRIs predicted response. Some of the circulating cytokines, such as fibroblast growth factor, and SDF1 also predicted for response to the tumor. So I do think that the tyrosine kinase inhibitors of VEGF also have activity in malignant glioma. Now, what was seen in both of the trials, your trial with arenotecanbev as well as sidirinib in terms of side effects and toxicity? I was surprised how well the bevacizumab was tolerated. Like most angiogenesis trials inhibiting VEGF, about 40% developed hypertension, requiring antihypertensive therapy. We've treated over 200 patients now. We've had five intratumoral hemorrhages, which is really to be expected with just normal therapy for these malignant gliomas. We've had a few people develop proteinuria. The one concern I have is an increased risk of thromboembolic complications. We had eight of our 68 patients on the phase two trial who developed early thromboembolic complications. So I think we need better markers and try to understand that. We did not have any arterial thrombotic complications. Can you talk more specifically about those eight patients in terms of what specific types of problems they had, how old they were, and whether you had the feeling that most of these really were treatment-related or not? I was suspicious that the eight thromboembolic complications were treatment-related because they developed within the first or second cycle after the initiation of the irinotecan and bevacizumab. The patients were not more debilitated. They weren't older. It's not like they had a much higher volume of disease where you'd suspect a higher risk of thromboembolic complications. So I'm suspicious just being a clinician that the bevacizumab may have increased that risk. Now, what kinds of clots specifically? Four of the clots were deep venous thromboses in the lower extremities, and four were pulmonary emboli. And then when we went to look for lower extremity thromboembolic disease, it was there as well. And what was the median age of these patients? The median age of the eight patients who developed the thromboembolic complications was 48. Hmm. Young. You mentioned the issue about bleeding, and of course, you know, there's been this whole thing in bevacizumab and other tumors in terms of the trials didn't allow patients in who had CNS-METs because, as you mentioned, there were a couple of observed bleeds. 
So we really don't know. And then the question comes up, you have patients who basically are dying and looking for some kind of option, particularly those who have treated brain mets. And then people look over at the glioma situation and say, well, wait a second, they're using that to treat malignant gliomas. How do you put this whole thing together? I mean, kind of gut feeling, you know, if you look at this issue, do you think that bevacizumab increases the chance of bleeding either with a primary or metastatic brain disease? I do not think that bevacizumab increases the risk of bleeding. I think what we're seeing is a very potent anti-tumor agent. And sometimes when you kill a lot of tumor cells, the tumor hemorrhages. And we have had no fatal CNS hemorrhages. A number of the patients that we have seen were actually asymptomatic. So I don't think that should preclude further investigation. But now you mentioned, for example, that sometimes you see bleeds just with these tumors, I guess even without treatment. Is this phenomena of response-related bleeding right now, at least it seems like, at least for the last year, has been the favorite explanation in lung cancer in terms of why they see bleeds. Are you saying that you think that phenomenon happens in the brain too? I definitely think that if you have an effective treatment for malignant glioma, there's a small percentage that will have CNS hemorrhage. So when you sit down with a patient, are you using bevacizumab and arena-tecan right now off-study? Quite commonly, we use it both in newly diagnosed patients, and then we have a number of bevacizumab-based regimens for recurrent disease. Are these all on trial or off-trial? We've had a number of trials with bevacizumab, but right now the majority of them, we've completed the trials, we've seen good activity, so most of the patients now are treated off-trial. When you sit down with a patient like that, they ask you, or when you bring it up, what kind of a number do you give them in terms of risk of bleeding in the brain? From our pretty extensive data with bevacizumab and malignant glioma, I think that risk is around 5%. And these patients are pretty savvy. When they say, gosh, I have 100% of dying of my malignant glioma in the next few months, if you have a therapy that has any chance of helping, I'm willing to take that risk. And what about other side effects or toxicities that we're seeing? I think you reported some fatigue that caused some dropping out, although I don't know whether you could tell whether that was from the treatment or the disease or what. What other problems do you think you can ascribe to the therapy? I think the bevacizumab-containing regimens do have an increase in fatigue. It's pretty profound where some of the patients have had a decrease in their Karnofsky performance status, say from 80 down to 60. The patient's doing better. It's very frustrating because the reason I treat these patients is to improve their quality of life. When they have this overwhelming fatigue, sometimes it interferes with that improvement. We have found some of the psychostimulants, Ritalin or Provigil, some of them can really overcome that fatigue. The other thing that makes a big difference that we don't explain enough is these patients have to exercise on a regular basis. And I don't know what it is with anti-VEGF therapy that limits their exercise, but if they can't exercise on a regular basis, that can also eliminate the fatigue. I'm not sure I've heard anybody talk about fatigue with bevacizumab. I mean, what would be the mechanism? Well, I'm a strong believer in tumor chemokines. I think that when you kill tumor, when the body's trying to fight a cancer, there's a lot of tumor necrosis factor. There's a lot of transforming growth factor beta. 
And these tumor chemokines kind of put the body at ease, tell it to slow down, and I think that's where the fatigue comes from. So it's really the TNF levels and the TGF-beta levels that I think does that. We've not actually measured them. It's one of my main interests. I'm purely speculating on the underlying mechanism. That's fascinating. What fraction of patients have this problem? I'd say at least two-thirds. Really? Yeah. Patient comes in, how you doing? Eh, you know, fair. You show them the MRI. The MRI is almost a complete response. They get all excited, but they're still left with the fatigue. And as I said, exercise can help improve that, but it doesn't eliminate it entirely. I mean, do you think that this is unique? Because again, I don't know, you tell me, have you heard this in relationship to you know, breast cancer, lung, colon, renal? I'm not as familiar with the other tumor types and the use of bevacizumab. What I can tell you is compared to other malignant glioma therapies, I do think there's more fatigue associated with the use of bevacizumab regimens. Now, part of that may be we finally have an effective treatment. Right. The patients are living a lot longer, so I have a chance to see them over the course of 18 to 24 months with their recurrent malignant glioma. In the past, it used to be three to six months. So I may just be extending out the natural history of their disease and allowing that fatigue to be clinically manifested. In the past, these patients progressed so quickly that it was more the seizures and the obtundation, the more severe neurologic effects that we dealt with. That's interesting. Now, are most of these people for that duration of time on steroids or not? We try to get them off steroids very quickly. Really, dexamethasone is the bane of a neuro-oncologist existence. It's one of those necessary evils. But if a patient's on it for more than three months, there's real significant detriments to quality of life. The steroid myopathy, the bone health, the emotional liability. So I try to taper them down dexamethasone every time I see the patient. Hmm, interesting. So do you think there's any correlation between the fatigue and response? I don't think there's any correlation between fatigue and response. We usually see responses by six weeks. The fatigue is an ongoing progressive issue that when patients are on bevacizumab six, nine, 12, 15 months, that's when it keeps getting worse. Can you kind of put in context a little bit, it's so hard sometimes when you see clinical trial reports, you see response rates and progression-free survival, and to try to compare between different trials and different agents. And your report with arena and, and bevacizumab was phase two, so it wasn't a randomized study. But can you kind of sort of qualitatively put in context the kinds of responses, the duration of responses and progression-free survival that you saw there compared to what you've seen, you know, in the past? Sure. The one thing about neuro-oncology is there has been a commitment to doing clinical trials to try to improve the treatment results. Before the bevacizumab trials, the response rates were in the 10 to 15 percent range. The six-month progression-free survivals were always less than 20 percent. So our trial had a statistical design based on a response rate of 20 percent and a six-month progression-free survival of 20 percent. When we saw a response rate of 60 and a six-month progression-free survival of 45%, we knew that this was an effective therapy. And one of the ways I can tell that is pretty much all neuro-oncologists are excited about the anti-VEGF therapies and the impact they're having on their patients. 
Now, can you also put into context what was seen with sidarinib? Comparing the bevacizumab results to yeah, just sort of indirectly, you know, and again, same kind of question in terms of what does it look like to you these phase two data? How would you compare that to what you saw with arenatique and Bev? Real hard to compare the sidarinib trials with the bevacizumab trials. The sidarinib trial had a lot of good kind of corollary studies with it. It was a much more labor-intensive trial. The report that Dr. Batchelor published was only 16 patients. They saw similar response rates. They only had a 23% six-month progression-free survival. But you got to remember, that was a single agent. And it's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. I really think that trial will provide the proof of principle to do more rigorous clinical trials to try to improve on those results, try to combine the tyrosine kinase VEGF inhibitors with other chemotherapies. What about side effects and toxicity with sidirinib? What was seen there? Similar in terms of the hypertension. That was really the main one. I don't recall whether he reported any fatigue. I don't think they had any complications with wound healing, but we've certainly seen that with some of our bevacizumab trials. What about bleeds? They did not have CNS hemorrhages, fortunately. And what are some of the other agents out there right now that are being considered, again, that look at the VEGF or attack the VEGF pathway? And what about combinations of agents, for example, sidirinib plus Bev? I'm a little nervous combining two anti-VEGF therapies in terms of really producing severe hypertension. I think the kidney is dependent on VEGF, and I'm worried about inhibiting it two different ways. So I think we have to do those trials cautiously. But there's a medication called VEGF-TRAP. It's kind of a dual antibody. It's a smaller molecule that has shown very good activity in malignant glioma trials. There's a new medication we're working with from Adnexus called Angiocept that is a direct ligand binder of the VEGF receptor. There's a number of VEGF tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We're doing a trial with Sutent. We've seen some activity. We're doing a trial with Serafinib. We've seen some activity. I'm very excited about some of the combination VEGF and EGF inhibitors. There's a medication called AZD6474 or Zactima. And so with that, we're really inhibiting the two main pathways of malignant gliomas, the blood vessels and the invasion. We're just starting those trials but it's actually a very exciting time to be in neuro-oncology. Now, in all these different agents, we'll wait for the trials, but, I mean, have we seen patients that clearly had responses that seem, you know, sometimes you see two or three patients, and that can be more impressive than a whole phase two trial. When you look at all these different kinds of agents, do you see patients who really seem to benefit from them? And how many of these agents have those kinds of responses been seen with? I'll answer that from my experience. Certainly with the Zactima, the AZD6474, we've had patients that have had dramatic responses. One of the other VEGF inhibitors, Pazotinib, is a pure VEGF tyrosine kinase inhibitor in combination with Lapatinib, another EGF inhibitor. We've seen dramatic responses. And I think you bring up a very good point that sometimes it's the two or three patients who came in in a wheelchair, had partial paralysis, and six, eight weeks later, they walk into the clinic and they have normal strength. And you say, there's something to this therapy. How about Sidirinib? Have you used that? We've not here at Duke. That's strictly been in Boston. 
are any of these TKIs or, you know, which of all these different, well, I should say, molecular agents in addition to BEV, where are they right now in clinical development? Which were the ones that you think are closest to maybe coming to the clinic? Well, the fact that serafinib and Sutent are FDA approved for other tumors, there's a lot more pharmaceutical interest in expanding the uses. So they're the closest to coming into clinic and being used off trial. Some of the VEGF-EGF combinations I'm more excited about and I think is going to make a bigger difference. What are some of the ongoing clinical trials and trials that are being discussed that are looking at these agents, particularly BEV as well as sidirinib? Well, I'll start with the sidirinib trials. They really want to do a large phase three trial in recurrent disease. So patients who have failed radiation and temidar, first recurrence, they want to compare sidirinib with lomustine, one of the nitrosureas that we use for recurrent GBMs, versus the combination of lomustine and sidirinib. It'll be a large trial, but it really will provide proof of principle and may get sidirinib FDA approved. What do we know about Temidor plus Bev? Temidor plus Bev is a very active regimen in the recurrent disease setting. We did a daily Temidor regimen plus Bevacizumab. It wasn't quite as good as the Irinotecan and Bevacizumab regimen, but we saw some good activity, uh, six-month progression-free survival in the 35% range. We're also doing a trial for newly diagnosed patients, as is Tim Clausey at UCLA, using Temidor, radiation therapy, and Bevacizumab right up front. Dr. Clausey's trial, they continue the Temidar with Bevacizumab. We're doing a triplet with Temidar, Irinotecan, and Bevacizumab for the six months after radiation therapy, trying to throw all the effective agents right up front at these newly diagnosed patients. What do we know about the side effects or toxicity of that triplet? There's more hematologic toxicity. About 20% will develop grade 3, 4 neutropenia or thrombocytopenia. We've not seen any increase in the bevacizumab toxicity, which is reassuring. But I'd say about 90% of the patients have been able to tolerate it without dose reductions. There's a number of patients where we do have to use cytokine support, but I think the world of neuro-oncology is finally getting more aggressive similar to other tumor types, and we're trying to see an improvement in survival. What are some of the other innovations that are coming out in terms of the management of this disease? I noticed they had this gliadol wafer or the BCNU wafer. I thought that was kind of interesting. What's that all about? The gliadel wafers are carmustine or BCNU impregnated polymers. If you think about malignant gliomas, they're very unique tumors in that they just grow locally. So they stay in the brain. They never develop metastatic disease. Well, it makes sense to treat them locally. And unfortunately, when you do your craniotomy and resect it, there's always invading tentacles from that primary tumor that come back very quickly. The idea behind the gliadel wafer is it leaves a very high concentration of carmustine right in the resection cavity that diffuses into the one to two centimeters of normal brain to kill those residual malignant glioma cells. The gliadel wafers are one of the few FDA-approved therapies for recurrent malignant GBM. And now, how big are these things, and how many do you put in? 
really depends on the size of the resection cavity. The gliadel wafers, I'm not a neurosurgeon, so I don't know. I can see them on MRI. They look to be one to two centimeters, more towards the one centimeter size. You put anywhere between four and eight wafers in a resection cavity. And I know they're active because these patients do have a lot more post-op edema. We have to keep them on Decadron longer to limit the edema. And a lot of that's because of the carmustine. Is that the primary side effect? Are there any systemic side effects? Nope. There's absolutely no bone marrow suppression. There's really no systemic side effects at all. It's really all local. It's kind of post-craniotomy, edema, some seizures, potential for increased wound dehiscence because of all the edema, potential for increased infection. But if you have a neurosurgeon who's familiar with the gliadel wafers, I think the toxicity is minimal. What about using it right up front with primary resections? There has been a study done where the gliadel wafers did improve survival by two months when incorporated right into the initial craniotomy and then followed by radiation therapy. So I think that's a very reasonable approach. To what extent are these wafers being used right now across the country? I don't know the exact percentage of use of the gliadel wafers. I can tell you at our center, if a patient's not on a clinical trial, we do try to use the gliadel wafers because they have a survival advantage. Now, at Duke, most of the patients are treated on clinical trials, and one of the difficulties with the gliadel wafers is you can have a lot of post-op edema, and sometimes it's very difficult to tell whether that's a therapeutic effect or tumor growth. So most of our recurrent disease trials, we exclude gliadel wafer insertion. Can you talk a little bit about the multidisciplinary team that you have at Duke and how the management or evaluation of patients is different there than maybe it might be in the community? There are a number of very good brain tumor centers in the country, and I think it's essential to have a multidisciplinary approach. The patient's tumor is a very small part of their journey and their quality of life. The most difficult thing about brain tumors is it takes away the patient's physical ability, it takes away their cognitive ability, and they're very emotionally labile. So honestly, I'm dependent on our neuropsychologist, on our social workers, on our nurses to really help the patient through their journey. The other part of brain tumors is the effect on the family. Frequently, the patient can't work. Frequently, the patient needs someone with them 24 hours a day. So then the spouse or the partner can't work. It's really a devastating illness. So you need part of our team to take care of the family as well. And as a busy clinician, honestly, I can't do that in the clinic. So most of our patients spend a lot of time down in the brain tumor center working with their other professionals to maximize their quality of life and ability to adjust to living with the brain tumor. What's the typical scenario in terms of end of life for these patients and how do they generally deteriorate and what's the usual cause of death? Malignant gliomas are a very difficult death because they take away the person's dignity. We talk about hospice right from the beginning. I think you really have to plant that seed that it's okay. You don't want to wait till a person has three or four progressions and has a KPS of 40% because then they feel abandoned. 
So right up front, you focus on quality of life, you get hospice involved, and if you are able to taper the dexamethasone, most of these patients have a marked increase in their intracerebral edema and go into a coma. We have a number of hospices in our area who have really done wonderful work with our unique patient group. So on average, how long do these patients spend in hospice under your care? I would say four to six weeks. It's a bad tumor. Their survival is short. And once a patient in the family come to that decision, we make sure they don't suffer and we're able to make sure they have a peaceful death. Now, I'm kind of curious, you know, sort of how you ended up focusing on this. I know not too long ago, you were doing a lot of breast cancer research, correct? The change in my career happened because of a real devotion to clinical research. And I looked around Duke and the Brain Tumor Center run by Alan and Henry Friedman really were their premier program for doing clinical trials, bringing innovative therapies to the patient. I really feel honored to have access to so many new molecules and medications. The basic science at the Brain Tumor Center is wonderful. There's so much better translational research than most areas in the country. It's really worked out very well for me, and it's tough patient work, but I've enjoyed it. What do we know about the etiology and pathogenesis, or particularly anything new in that area? It's frustrating how little we know. I'm very encouraged that the National Cancer Institute is sponsoring a large epidemiology study. So we're trying to get at a lot of this information. Really, the main risk factor that I know of is radiation therapy can increase the risk of gliomas. But for 99 plus percent of our patients, they really have no risk factors. Anything about the actual pathology or pathophysiology of this tumor? You know, as a clinician, not knowing a lot about all these different pathways, people sit back and just sort of globally listen to different people and different tumor types sort of tell the story. I mean, for example, as I listen to you talk about this, I've thought a lot about renal cell for some reason, even though I know maybe the mechanisms are different. It's just compared to some of the other tumors that you hear about, lung, breast, and colon, it just sounds like maybe there's something more going on in the brain in terms of particularly VEGF. I agree with you 100%. I, or I should say angiogenesis, a, really. Right. There's really an angiogenic phenotype in certain organs. Three main organs that I think of are the brain, the kidney, and the liver. Those organs are just full of blood vessels. They have the highest VEGF levels, and the tumors tend to stay locally, certainly within the brain. So I do think the angiogenic phenotype is important and very unique. The other thing about those three tumors is that they're inherently resistant to chemotherapy. So we really needed to understand the angiogenic phenotype and to bring new therapies to those three tumors. And fortunately, it's finally being done. Can you talk a little bit about your sort of basic algorithm to approaching primary and then recurrent disease? Sure. So newly diagnosed glioblastoma multiforme patients, I think one of the keys is to try to get them a gross total resection. I think you need a neurosurgeon who's very experienced in brain tumor resections. We always use radiation therapy and temozolomide. We try to use the tumor MGMT to understand how effective we think the temozolomide is going to be. And certainly at Duke, we've tried to incorporate some of the successful innovative 
innovative therapies we've developed. So we incorporate bevacizumab early on into the treatment of a lot of our GBM patients. I'm very interested if that triplet of Temidar, irinotecan, and bevacizumab is really going to improve the survival. My suspicion is, is that it will. Are there any situations where you would consider that triplet off-study? We do use that triplet off-study. I like the patient to have a KPS of 80%, and I need the patient on board to understand that there's certainly an increased risk, there's increased toxicity, but there's the potential for an increased therapeutic gain and improved survival. And a number of patients have done their homework, and they understand the poor prognosis of GBMs, and they come to Duke wanting an aggressive therapy. And I think the triplet is the one that will really help them. So for recurrent disease, are you generally using arena TKN with the BEV or any other agent? For recurrent disease, we try to treat about two-thirds of our patients on clinical trials. So that's our primary emphasis. Yes, I think the bevacizumab and irinotecan has helped most of the patients, but I'm certainly not resting our laurels. I think we have a lot of work ahead of us. The only way we'll continue to improve the survival of GBM patients is through clinical trials. Those patients that can't travel or aren't eligible for clinical trials, if they haven't failed irinotecan, then that is our first regimen, is irinotecan and bevacizumab. A lot of times we'll cycle them to etoposide and bevacizumab or the daily Temidar with bevacizumab. They're really our main salvage regimens. Now, are there situations where you would continue the bevacizumab and switch the accompanying agent? Of course, this is a big area of controversy in a bunch of tumors, but particularly someone who's done well on that first bevacizumab combination. Certainly in the clinic, that is our bias. If I see a patient who has responded to a bevacizumab-containing regimen and remained stable for at least six months, I think the bevacizumab is the major backbone that that patient should be treated with. So I think a patient's tumors become resistant to the concurrent chemotherapy, so we change the agent. We change from an alkylating agent to a TOPO1 inhibitor to a TOPO2 inhibitor. We combine the alkylating agents with the topo inhibitor. And I think a lot of these patients are able to get successful treatment for many months, whereas when we stop the bevacizumab, frequently the tumor will explode on us. Where do you see GBM sort of fitting in the typical general oncology practice? I would assume that docs are not seeing that many of these patients. Is that the case? I agree. In the United States, there's 22,000 malignant gliomas, so it's a relatively rare tumor. It tends to occur in the elderly. The patient's performance status is frequently 60% or less. The difficult thing about treating brain tumor patients is there's a lot of neurology involved. There's a lot of seizure management. There's a lot of counseling of the family. So a lot of times a busy oncologist in the community just can't handle or doesn't want to handle a malignant glioma patient. I think that's good for brain tumor centers because then we can get more patients on clinical trials and hopefully improve the treatment results of this disease. But now if the patient doesn't go to a brain tumor center, are some of these people being taken care of by neurologists or neurosurgeons without an oncologist ever being involved? Or what do you think is going on? The only patients that don't end up seeing an oncologist are the ones with very poor performance status. 
KPS is 50% or less, it's really not appropriate to consider chemotherapy. Because temozolomide has become the standard of care, most neurologists are not trained in neuro-oncology. Most neurosurgeons don't have familiarity with chemotherapy, so they don't want to deal with the temozolomide. So most brain tumor patients who are getting active treatment do see an oncologist. What have you found in terms of the interest level in oncologists in this tumor? Are you going out giving CME lectures? Are docs interested in this? I think physicians are fascinated with the improvements we've seen in neuro-oncology. Certainly when I went through my medical oncology fellowship, we were taught that brain tumors were universally fatal. No one lived a year. If a patient progressed to one chemotherapy regimen, there was nothing else these patients could be treated with. Now, a lot of the oncologists have had experience with Temidar. They realize the survival's improved. With our publications, a lot have called me that I see socially, and they say, you know, the bevacizumab's really making a difference in a lot of brain tumor patients, so they become more interested. The other thing that's curious is that malignant gliomas has kind of opened up the gateway for the treatment of brain metastases. There's 10 times more brain met patients than there are primary brain tumor patients. And with more effective systemic therapy, there's a lot of solid tumor patients whose only site of disease is in the brain. And when they progress after whole brain radiation therapy, we need new therapies. And now people are saying, gosh, maybe we can use the lessons learned in neuro-oncology for our solid tumor patients. I'm hoping that's the case. You think that biologically, though, brain mets are, I would assume they're more similar to the primary tumor than they are to malignant gliomas. I think that brain metastases are also C's of VEGF. So I think the angiogenic phenotype is somewhat similar. And I think that when you have a brain met, you have very tortuous, abnormal vessels. You get areas of hypoxia. You get areas of acidosis. The tumor becomes resistant. The only way to normalize the physiology is with an anti-angiogenic approach. So I think there's more similarities than there are dissimilarities. So are you saying that maybe there are tumors where anti-angiogenic strategies really aren't that effective in the primary tumor or metastasis outside the brain, but they might be more effective in the brain mets? That's my hope. I haven't seen any solid data or don't have any personal experience to confirm that. But just knowing the angiogenic phenotype and brain mets are usually adjacent to vessels. They're dependent on the tumor vasculature. So I think we're going to end up finding that out. You mentioned that a lot of oncologists do have experience with Temidor. Any issues there in terms of utilization of it or problems with it or questions you get about it or is it pretty straightforward? I think the use of Temidar is very straightforward. I think the patient tolerates it well. There's about 10% of people who will have more profound bone marrow suppression. And I think that we need to understand that. I'm not aware of any metabolic defect or pharmacogenomic explanation for why this small percentage of patients have such profound marrow suppression. But for a practicing oncologist, Temidar is real easy. You mentioned also the issue of the experience of neurosurgeons dealing with gliomas. Do you think that in general the outcomes are so much better that most of these patients should be operated on in either tertiary centers or by neurosurgeons who are doing a lot of neuro-oncology? I do think that the extent of the surgery 
and the safety of the surgery to maintain the patient's quality of life is critical. I'm not saying that all the patients need to be operated on at a tertiary center, but I think that the neurosurgeon needs extensive experience with brain tumor resections in order to provide the best patient care. You know, this comes up all the time in all different kinds of tumors, hepatic resection, et cetera. Is there any sort of practical way that an oncologist can sort of figure out whether a neurosurgeon's experienced enough? Is there a certain number of procedures or any other way to evaluate this? I have not figured that out. So no, not really. At, fortunately, at Duke, we have really two neurosurgeons that do the bulk of the brain tumor resections. It's a very busy surgical practice. So I'm somewhat spoiled in that regard. But in the community, I really don't know how to figure that out. I think it's a very exciting time in neuro-oncology, really combining some of the biologic agents with chemotherapy and improving these patients' survival. The other thing that's really benefited us is the translation of good basic science into the clinic and taking advantage of some of our new therapeutics. I would also hope that the medical oncology community wouldn't be quite so pessimistic with brain tumors that some of these patients are able to have very good quality of life and that there's a real commitment to their quality of life as opposed to just the tumor. What are some of the trials that are ongoing right now that you're putting your patients on and other neuro-oncologists are putting their patients on, particularly national trials that you think are going to be most important to clinical practice over the next five years or so? Well, I think the main trial is going to be the phase three trial of newly diagnosed patients that will be assigned to Temidar radiation therapy versus Temidar radiation therapy and bevacizumab. That's really going to be the practice-changing clinical trial in the next decade, and I really think it's a critically important trial. In terms of recurrent disease, I think that we need to understand which of the agents we should focus our emphasis on. I've mentioned a number of agents that have similar mechanisms of action. So what we need to do is a lot of small phase two trials, try to get a signal for this particular combination is particularly active, like we found with the bevacizumab, and then really try to put an emphasis, a number of patients on those trials. And I don't want to have the field get so dispersed that everybody's trying to do their small phase two trials with different agents, and then we kind of lose this momentum of practice. 